0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amir Syed Abdi, the host of the channel. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Rose Wellman about her new book, Feeding Iran, which was published just recently in 2021 by University of California Press. Uh, Rose is an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Michigan, Dearborn. Uh, First of all, Rose, congratulations on your new book. It is an amazing work and I uh, really enjoyed reading it. And also thanks for accepting my invitation and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much. Uh,
0: To start off, uh, could you give us a bit of background about uh, yourself and uh, also your research?
1: Yeah, um, so I am an anthropologist and... I got my degree in anthropology, my PhD from the University of Virginia, um, where I had the tremendous fortune of having an amazing faculty, amazing advisors with great theoretical depth. So um, that was kind of my start. Um, I also did major in anthropology back in undergraduate. I was one of those anthropology through and through. Um, and so uh, then after I graduated with my PhD, where I did work on Iran, but we'll be talking about that later, um, I was a postdoc at Princeton University at their Sharmin and Bijan Mosavar Rahmani Center for Iran and Persian Gulf Studies for three years. And then uh, now I'm an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Virginia, of, not Virginia, of Michigan, Dearborn, where I am currently teaching um, students every day. So it's very exciting.
0: Uh, Thank you, Rose. And at at the beginning of your book, in the acknowledgement part, I have noticed that um, you have mentioned that my late grandmother, Edith L.B. Turner, is the reason I became an anthropologist. Uh, Are we talking about the Edith Turner?
1: (laughs) Yes. um, Yeah. So I glossed over that earlier. But yes, my um, my I have an anthropological lineage or genealogy. Um, My grandmother is or was Edith Turner. And my grandfather was Victor Turner. Uh, so I um, came to uh, anthropology that way as well. Yeah.
0: Okay. How does it feel to have, you know, famous uh, grandparents, Rose? Uh, especially with you being an anthropologist, when your grandparents were two of the most known anthropologists of all time?
1: Uh, well, it's interesting because, you know, it sort of skipped a generation. My my parents are both in poetry and literature and writing and things like this. But um I got the, the great joy of living with my grandmother for eight years when I was in graduate school. I lived with her in her house and we're very close. We were very close. We share a birthday. Um, and I just, you know, I, it's definitely different. You grow up hearing about cultural relativity and about the importance of doing things with people and getting to know them. And it's never that kind of life as a kid where you're taught about you know, to avoid other people or to stay away or to hate difference or things like that. You know, I was always raised to be culturally aware. So I think I had a very different approach than most people to anthropology because of my history.
0: Um, Thank you, Rose. And uh, there is often a story behind uh, every book. What's the story behind yours? I mean, why food? Why Iran?
1: Well, so I... um, I first became interested in Iran, not uh, when I was in graduate school, but when I was an undergraduate student. And at the time, I had a roommate, basically like a floor mate, who was Iranian. And she would invite me to her house and I got to eat the amazing foods that her mother cooked and hear her speak Farsi, which is the language of Iran. And I kind of fell in love with the whole culture. Um, It was also the year, my first year of undergrad was when 9-11 happened. And so I sort of became aware of the need to um, kind of dispel common stereotypes and myths about the Middle East and to combat those kinds of negative perceptions. So that was all part of it. But food, yeah, became uh, in my mind from those early days of eating food with her and her family. And then later, um, when I went to Iran... And I was there three different occasions. And each time I could not ignore the food. It was a part of everything I did. Every invitation I went to, every circumstance I went to, there was food. There was a lot of it. People were offering it to me and it was amazing. And so it just became something that I could not kind of do my work without attending to.
0: See, And uh, I understand that part of your field work was uh, in the capital, Tehran, and uh, some other part in a small town in south of Iran, which you have chosen not to name. I mean, you you call it farsabad in mm-hmm. in the book, um, and and you, you you actually don't use the real name of the uh, of that town to protect your uh, participant's mm-hmm. identity. So, why did you choose these two particular sites?
1: So. As all students do when they're starting to do research in Iran, I ended up in Tehran initially, and that's where there's, you know, there's a language school that kind of supports foreign um, language, people who are learning um, Persian, and there's also, um, it's just kind of the center of everything in Iran. So I started off in Tehran, and it was there that I met people. Um, the very first trip actually was the first time I met the people who I was I would later do my research with. They just happened to be living across the hallway from um, an Iran- Iranian American friend I was staying with, and so we started to meet up. They had same age. Um, kind of young people at that time I was in my 20s and they had same age young people and we would go and do things together in Tehran they lived in Ekbatan which is a kind of suburb of Tehran and so I just explored Iran with them from the very beginning and eventually they led me through their family network to Farsabad where um, which is near Shiraz where I later spent most of my time doing research and Um, It was through their connections and their um, and their early, you know, invitation for me to come visit them and their family there during Nowruz and things like this that I decided, okay, you know, this is where I could do research. And I knew that Tehran was a place where all the people who were doing research in Iran were focusing on. It was the site of the Green Movement protests. It was uh, the site of most of my colleagues research. And so I thought maybe if I go off the beaten path of just a little bit to um, Farsabar would ten-hour drive from uh, Tehran, I could maybe learn more about kind of more um, provincial. I guess provincial has a lot of meanings, but people who, literally who live in the provinces and don't necessarily are on the periphery of all the elites and so and those types of people in Tehran who. Kind of are the people in control? I wanted to see the kind of ordinary everyday people's lives that aren't in the urban centers.
0: Um, I see, but they are not. I mean, all ordinary uh, Iranian people. You you yeah. focus on a very particular uh, type of families that you call Basiji families. So, yeah. could you tell us a bit more about you know Basiji families or Basiji people or who are your uh, interlocutors?
1: Yeah, so they are um, members of the Basij. And the Basij is a group of paramilitary um, uh, people who uh, kind of uh, were formed by the late Ayatollah Khomeini in 1980 to defend Iran and the Islamic Republic at the time and during the Iran-Iraq War. Um, They were the first to go to the front and be martyred. And they're distinct, subsidiary to and distinct from the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. Um, The way I became connected to this group there were two reasons. One was this was the family, like I said, that happened to live across the hallway. It was just happenstance. I happened to live across the hallway from an Iranian American friend in the suburb of Ecbatana, and so, you know, I just started to meet these people, and so it was kind of just a mistake or a happy accident. Later, I purposely thought to myself, you know, this was the time of the of the green movement protests in Iran, and I did not want to endanger someone who was more of a reformist uh, type position in the political landscape of Iran, which is a tremendously diverse political landscape. But so I thought to myself, like, maybe if I'm with a family that supports the state, I will not endanger them at all by doing my research. And so it was a very important thing for me to choose that direction. I also thought that that it would be interesting um, to understand and to kind of look at the lives of people who did support the Islamic Republic at a time when there was a lot of protests going on um, you know, toward uh, reform and change. So I thought it would be an interesting kind of problem to look at.
0: It is uh, indeed interesting. And uh, yeah. this kind of leads me to uh, a, follow-up, a follow-up question uh, about your positionality. I mean, you're, uh, you were a, a white uh, American mm-hmm. woman and especially with the um, you know type of mindset that you just described about your participants, who are the supporters of the Islamic Republic, uh, mm-hmm. how did your uh, positionality facilitate it or uh, prevented your access to uh, you know certain places or certain peoples?
1: Um, so it's a very interesting question, and I'm glad you asked it because. It certainly impacted my research quite a lot. Um, being um, white, being a British American person in particular, so I have two passports. I'm both British and American. Um, being British is what allowed me to get to Iran, um, but you know, I had difficulties in various ways. One was difficulties getting a visa and things like that. And then later, when I was in Farsabad, where I lived, it was a, quite a rural community. And, um, you know, it was a farming community. It was a place where people, life was organized around a pickling factory and um, various orchards that people had in terms of gardening and things like this. And I, you know, being there, I was asked by my hosts who I lived with to, um, I was asked by them to be to not do research on my own. So I wasn't just going out to everyone and just talking to everyone in this town. Anytime I left the home, I had um, one of my host siblings with me or uh, my host mother, Nushin, with me. And they really kind of, you know, they facilitated my research, but it was also hard because I couldn't have that kind of Um, just, I couldn't go wherever I wanted at any point. And this was actually uh, further instilled in me when there was one time where I met the mayor of Farsabad and, you know, I told him I'm a researcher and I'm doing this. And he also uh, clarified that, you know, as a white woman here in Farsabad, you should go out with an escort. And so my research was colored by that in a lot of different ways. Um, On the one hand, because I was a woman, I could live with the family and I could participate in their lives, and I could be inside the house, and everyone could be comfortable. I mean, I when I was in the house, I did wear hijab. I wore long um, sleeves and things like this, um, but I also uh, was able to do that, I was able to be there. If I'd been a man, that would not have been possible, but at the same time, um, I had some restrictions in my movements and my ability to do research, so it produced this. For me, when I reflect on it, I think, you know, my ethnography is very intimate in the sense that I really got to know people, a small group of people and their relatives and their neighbors and um, their family kind of spread across several cities. But I got to know them very intimately. I did not, however, get to know like many, many people in the town and talk to, you know, hundreds of, of strangers. So it, was a, it really colored my research, but it, it led to some good things and led to some restrictions at the same time.
0: Hey. And um, this is, again, um, kind of um, about your positionality, but um, we know that, you know, anthropology began as a colonial discipline, right? And it was uh, at uh, its early days, at least, uh, uniquely focused on, uh, you know, culture, language, or uh, biology of non-European peoples. And anthropologists often, uh, you know, have positioned themselves as the so-called objective uh, observers of the... Uh, exotic other Uh, now we have uh, at least to some degree moved away from that kind of thinking thinking and uh, that kind of approach but even some of today's anthropological works produced by uh, white western anthropologists uh, position uh, non-western subjects and uh, non-western field sites non-western practices non-western languages and rituals as uh, sources of data rather than as partners in, uh, you know, knowledge production as uh, Mm -hmm. true and valid, uh, you know, legitimate owners of their own voices and of their own histories. Now, how did you as a Western anthropologist who was working in a non-Western context and with non-Western interlocutors and their non-Western rituals and practices kind of navigate these kinds of uh, moral or ethical, if you will, issues?
1: Um, well, I tried to, you know, it's, um, I, I currently teach like, right now I'm teaching a class on Islamophobia and a big part of that class we, we teach, I teach about Orientalism and I teach about the structural kind of dynamic between East and West and the way that it, the West has cre- created an East and in and, um, and this power relationship Um, that creates a lot of stereotypes as well. And I think, you know, thinking back, I navigated it in a couple of different ways. And one was that I was very much in the mode of not only participant observation, but what we might call observant participation. And I was in the mode of reflexive anthropology, which means that I, I, You know, in the book, I think you can see this, that I bring myself into the text, but not so much that I become the focus of the text, but so much that you can see that how my views are somewhat shaping what I write and how what I write is shaping my views. And I think that comes out a bit. Um, I think that's important because it's impossible to be completely objective. And, um, you know, I very much am strong believer in kind of Roy Wagner's theory of the invention of culture and how... Um, we're always kind of inventing something based on our own cultural predispositions. We have to recognize that. And so that's important. Um, when it came to the idea of being a British American person in Iran at that time, the biggest way I saw it on an everyday basis was that people would ask me to write them a name or a letter to um, come to America. Now I had no idea at the time where that power to do that would come from within me as this graduate student doing research in Iran. And I didn't have that capacity to, to write these letters of invitation, but I um, you know, it, it showed me the positionality that I had um, of being, you know, from the West, from America, with this, these passports, in fact, two passports that, by which I could go anywhere, pretty much, um, and these people just really wanted to be able to visit America and see America, and even these Urbasich people who supported the state, and people might think they don't even want to know English or things like this, but no, they did, and they, they wanted to learn more about America and this culture, and so there was a difference that I could move, and they had to stay. And that was something that was hard Um, and it remains hard, you know, I'm still in touch with my hosts and um, it remains hard that, you know, when I talk to them now, years have passed, people have had children, lives have changed, but I'm able to move around the globe as a passport holder of American passport holder, and they have much more trouble doing that. Um, And so that's, that's very, it's very clear and it definitely shapes the research. And so I, I think that it's just, it's really important. It's become even more important that anthropologists are, you know, with new issues that have come up lately in the field of anthropology, that we are honest about our positionality as researchers and like things like this. So I i, I say in the book, my like my religious orientation I talk about in the book, because I think that's important too, how people in Iran often saw me as someone to convert. So it wasn't always the power relationship you might expect. You might expect that because I'm a Westerner, I have the kind of the power. But when I was there, I was there alone. I didn't travel with anyone else, and I was a woman. And so there was there was an also there was a power relationship also going the other way too. To be honest, where people mm-hmm. saw me as someone that they could teach or become a mentor to me. And so often I was being put in position of you know um, I hope you will convert to Islam. I hope I will be the one to convert you because then I will go to heaven. <laughs> and so and so I got that a couple times. Um, And, you know, I I really threw myself in, you know, I did prayer with Nushin every day when she invited me to do it with her. I learned um, namaz. I learned the daily prayer. I learned, I went to the mosque with them. I did the prayer. I didn't just sit on the outside and observe. Um, And I learned a lot through that, through embodying those motions and and saying those words. Um, And in the book, I try to talk about how I struggled, the tension I have with um, you know, I was raised, as you mentioned, by anthropologists who threw themselves in. I would say to ritual and to, yes. um, and to all of that. And so, when with that perspective, I threw myself into it. But at the same time, I'm not my grandparents. I'm not quite the same way. I was raised a little bit with a little more cynicism and skeptic nature, I guess. So I, I always kind of kept that what what um what we might call a methodological agnosticism. Um not not quite theism, which is where you like fully believe everything the people you're doing to it. I kind of always kept a little distance, but that's just who I am. I don't know it's hard when you're an anthropologist, everything you are affects your research. And I really believe that. And you have to be aware of that.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Thank you, Rose. Um, yeah. So uh, moving on to the contents of, of your book, uh, your book has four ethnographic chapters. And two of these chapters have a, a heavy focus on food, whereas uh, the other two don't. But uh, what is common in all these chapters is, uh, as far as I understood, an exploration of uh, keen making processes in post revolutionary Iran among Uh, supporters of the Islamic Republic or Basiji Mm -hmm. families Um, and you talk about how kinship is uh, perceived by Basiji families as both a threat and a resource Mm -hmm. and you frame this through what you call physio-sacred qualities of kinship Mm -hmm. so what are these physio-sacred qualities I mean what do you mean by that and how does it manifest
1: okay so let me just take a step back and kind of um tell you a little bit about how I approach kinship because I think that will help. So um, in in anthropology for a long time, right? People saw kinship through a genealogical frame and this is in people like Pitt Rivers and um, uh, even the structural anthropologists and so on. They tended to think of kinship as a genealogical frame. um, Genealogy or blood and marriage being two key ways that people do kinship. Um, but not many people ha- in who had done research in the Middle East have thought of kinship in that way, um, beyond that way. So there was a move in kinship studies that sought to think about kinship in a different way. And it's often called relatedness or it's called new kinship studies. And it's a way of thinking about how people construct family ties by doing things Um or maybe by in through processes of things or rituals, or maybe by living together or by eating together, or through living in a house or through various things that people can do that can also shape uh, networks of kin. And so um, one of the things that I noticed in my research in Iran was that Other things were shaping kinship in much the same way. So it wasn't just blood and it wasn't just law um, or even Islamic law, although that was important. It was also the way in which people understood kinship to be shaped through food and through um, shared qualities of purity and um, shared qualities of trust and shared qualities of you know, kind of embodying certain religious ethics in their daily lives. And these, I call these kind of acts of kinship. And so I look at how people form kinship through doing things like praying together, eating food together, and not just food, but food that has been blessed um, or made pure or um, somehow changed through ritual, through prayer and then um, how that shapes the bodies of kin. So when I'm talking about kinship as a physio sacred thing, it's also part of not um, putting the Cartesian dualist model of body and self of um, spirit and matter onto um, my interlocutors in Iran who didn't really have quite that same distinction. They saw their body and their spirituality or their spirit as being very much intertwined. And so, you know if you ate some food that was not halal, it would make a mark on your face, or it would shape your temperament, or it would shape your body in some way. So, your spiritual and your embodied selves were connected, and this was the same for kin. So, kin, I, I realized this during my research that kin could kind of um uh they could develop together, so more through eating the right food that came from the right places that had the right prayers, they could develop um, embodied um, physio-sacred stuff of kinship could be altered in a good way, or it could be um, harmed through embodying or eating the wrong types of food that maybe had um, were contaminated by some ill-wish, ill-intended prayer, or by other um, maybe by not being halal or things like this, and so all of these things together could shape your family and and your ability to um, be a good person and relate to other people in your family in the right way.
0: Um, so would it be safe to say that you know uh, what you discussed with regard to uh, commemorating and burial of martyrs, or should I say reburial of martyrs uh, who were killed in the eight-year-long uh, Iran-Iraq War, is an extension? Uh, extension of these uh, kinship making processes that you're talking about?
1: Well, yes, because so just quickly going back to the family, if this cooking and feeding was shaping and protecting families at home, then I saw a very, an analogical thing an analogical thing happening with the nation because um, at the level of the nation, you could see that there was this physio sacred shaping of people who came out to participate in the rituals of state power so they were also um kind of working with the same physio sacred stuff of kinship um the, that was always shifting an object of prayer but they were putting that on to brothers and sisters of islam who are citizens of the nation state um so when you're talking about this um commemoration for, Martyrs. This is one of the key things that happened in my fieldwork and kind of shaped my research. So when I was in Farsabad, at one point, um, there was, uh, they had brought two unknown martyrs from the border of Iran and Iraq. And the martyrs were brought to be reburied in the town park. And um, the, they were brought by a peristatal martyrs foundation. And that foundation was funded by the state. And during the ceremonies surrounding this reburial of these two unknown martyrs, the local religious leader, who they call a Friday Imam, addressed the crowd. And I remember that he called on the participants to think of themselves as kin of the martyrs. And this is the common theme in Iranian nationalism in general. This, this idea of brother and sisterhood and, mm-hmm. and so on an Islamic brother and his sisterhood. But he said, because this martyr is unknown, we the people are his brother, his sister, his mother. And then after that prayer, uniformed soldiers uh, distributed cups of yogurt, juice boxes, and plates, um, including lentils and rice, which is adas polo, which is a favorite of mine. Um, yeah, and the mine food. Too. That, yeah, yeah. So that everyone loves that. So the food that each participant ate was paid by the Foundation for Preservation of the Heritage and Distribution of Sacred Defense. So that's that peristatal. Um, unit. And, and so it struck me that there's this resonance between what's happening in the family at home with the cooking and feeding practices that are so religiously oriented and are, and are meant to shape the family in the right way, and these islamically oriented state rituals that um, legitimize a certain view of citizenship. And this view of citizenship is not shared by everyone, but it is shared by these people these Basij who I did my research with at least, and I was shared by them because they really saw these connections and thought they were important. That somehow the household, their household and the nation state were connected through these analogies that they actually were explicitly connected in this way. Um, and so there was really kind of like a biopolitical shaping of citizens through food in these ritual events. Now, at the same time, Iran has other ways of shaping people through food um, as a state. And so they have, you know, halal borders where um, in most cases, uh, it the borders are regulated in terms of can halal products or not halal products that are not halal be brought over and the answer is no. Um, and so there's that level of state kind of control of what people eat. And then there's also like different restaurants and things like that and how These things structure the bodies of citizens who go to eat at, say, a cafe, or if they go to a specific kind of, I don't know, restaurant that is organized for Basiji families, and it has a very different way of of being laid out and things like this. So you can go to a Western-style cafe in Iran, or you can go to other settings where family units kind of are encouraged to go. So all of these things are being debated right now in Iran, and there's a lot of kind of issues around where people go, how they eat, how they dress when they eat, um, what kinds of foods are being served? Is that foreign? Is that local? Is it? halal? obviously, most of the food that is served is halal. but what how, all of these threads are operating right now in Iran and are shaping citizens and they're kind of navigating what they want to be through the foods that they eat.
0: And uh, this focus on food grows. Uh was, was, was it something you had in mind before entering the field work? Uh, I mean, uh, did, did you have an interest in food? Did you look for, you know, food practices that could, you know, examine these kinship processes or these, you know, nation making processes or uh, did, did it like present itself to you? Did it emerge as a team while you were doing your field work as a means through which, uh, you know, these particular systems of uh, kinship could be examined?
1: Um, you know, it, it kind of, uh, I came to it through, so I told you this earlier, I went to Iran three times, two times for preliminary research and the third time for a long, um, oh, much longer, you know, real field work during my, uh, graduate years. And it took me until the second or third time to realize the significance of food. So I've always loved Iranian food, like I've loved to eat it, but, um, it, you know, I went to Iran with the idea of studying kinship. I, I had no concept of thinking about food, but I had read some anthropological essays on the role of food in um, constructing kinship in different places. So I, I I was really well read on kinship literature. And so when I went to Iran and I saw how food was, you know, when people sat together around um, what Iranians call the sylfre, which is, you um, kind of, it could be anything, but it's like a cloth on the ground where people put their food and um, they display it. And usually it's a very beautiful, symmetrical display and people sit in kind of an organized way around it. I, um, I started to see the significance of food for the family unit. And I think the moment it hit me the most was the first time I went to the uh, Iranian New Year celebrations in uh, Farsabad. And I saw that everyone, we went to this grassy bank on the side of a river and everyone, every family unit had their own sofre. They had their own cloth and they were gathered around it and they'd brought their own food. And the only thing they were sharing between the different sofres that they had on the ground was tea, Um, that was the only thing. And then later in the night, extended families shared kebab but the meals, the lunch meals, the main foods were shared with each family unit. And then I started to see that there was a lot of work being done to think about who one can visit. And most of the meals people ate with their own family. They didn't go to um, a cousin's house or a neighbor's house for lunch meals in particular. There were other times when one could visit, but during those meals, it was very um, important to kind kind of stick with your family unit for the most part. And, and getting going to grab a sandwich you know, from a shop was frowned upon. It was important to eat that home-cooked food from your mother from your, um, that had been kind of vetted by the whole family and had been uh, brought to the house where you knew the baker, you knew the, the person who had sold and bought you the rice and things like this. And so it was, the food became, I saw how the food was very important because of that physio quality of the family, what you ate was so important. Um, for ensuring the health and welfare of your family. And this was in a society that my interlocutor said was failing in a lot of ways. You know, even though they supported the revolution and they supported the current Ayatollah um, of Iran, Ayatollah Khamenei, the supreme leader in um, particular, they, they supported him, but they, um, they saw that there was a lot of problems in Iran Iranian society. They had an incursion of another substance, drugs, from Afghanistan, they said was the um, the effect of you know American foreign policy in Afghanistan, and their drugs were abundant in their community, particularly heroin and um, and also opium. And they and they and not only that, but there were problems that they saw like divorce or premarital dating and things like this that they saw as wrong, and so they had to. Um, they felt like they had to do something to protect, to change things. And so this is this heavy emphasis on food and shaping their families and in arranging. And so I couldn't ignore it when that happened. And I started to see that this would actually help me think about kinship in a different way too, because if kinship isn't just blood and it isn't just law, and it's all these processes that people do to shape their families, then it's something more. And, and this is a context where, kinship usually in the Middle East has been portrayed as, you know, patrilineal or something like this. And I thought kinship is more than this. And so I wanted to show that.
0: Hey. Um, and with, with this heavy focus on food and heavy emphasis on, on food in your book, uh, I imagine uh, that you must have some, you know, food related memory during your field, field work that has stayed with you uh, that you could share with us. And I'm asking this because this is a podcast on new books and food studies. Uh, yeah. Do you have any such memory?
1: I have a couple. Um, I was thinking about, I went to uh on one occasion, I went to this shrine. It was a descendant of um, I think it was the Imam um, Musa Kazam. And yeah. um we were at this shrine, and this woman was standing outside of the shrine. There's almost no one there because this is like a far off descendant, maybe a grandson or granddaughter of, you know, it's an imam's day. It's a descendant of an imam. And I'm at the shrine, and this woman is handing us ash. And ash is a very common votive soup. It's made with wheat noodles and all kinds of vegetables. It says it's like green texture and then it's a green um, color and then it's kind of thick. And it's got this wheat noodle um, consistent. Wheat noodles are one of the main ingredients and also beans sometimes. And also it's decorated on the top with um, kashka kind of yogurt type thing. And also with uh, fried onions. And it's a very interesting food. It's not something that you would think of as being the most delicious food, but you kind of grow to love it. And people, I think, have very strong um, feelings associated with it because it's a very commonly used votive food, as I said. And so um, I just remember eating this uh, votive soup that this woman gave us and how my host mother, and it was good because I, at that point i had gotten used to eating Asha. It took me a little while to eat this, to get used to it, but I was eating it. And she told me that, you know, I was so lucky to eat this fare because it was so the woman who had made it was so sincere in her vow. And so, and she was there alone. And, and for some reason we felt like it was so important that we'd eaten this food. And so that, that's what struck me and what I remember from um, a food memory. The other funnier one was when I tried to cook lasagna for my host family, because I thought maybe I'll contribute something. And they did not like my food at all. They said it was strong But I could tell by the looks on their faces that they were kind of thinking, what is this that you made for us? This is not real food. So, (laughs) anyway.
0: Um, I wish I hadn't asked that question, Rose, because now I'm longing for Ash. Uh, yeah. I haven't had it for the past six years, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I, uh, there's obviously a lot more in the book, and I encourage listeners to pick up a copy. But uh, before we wrap up the interview, I'd like to ask uh, whether you're working on something right now, Rose, or are you thinking about doing a research on a you know, particular topic in the near future?
1: Uh, yeah, so I, um, I'm i actually, because I'm currently located in Dearborn, Michigan in the United States, I am in this amazing, I don't know if you've heard of this, but I'm in this amazing community that is the heart of Arab Detroit. And mm-hmm. a lot of the people here are first or second generation um, immigrants to the US. And most, a lot of them speak Arabic and um, it's just a it's a very unique place. Um, I highly recommend anyone to visit it. We also have a large we have a large Lebanese, a large Iraqi, and a large Yemeni community, a large Syrian community as well. And so I'm here and I, uh, you know, I did my research in Iran and a lot of it had to do with food and a lot of it had to do with religion, Islam. And so I'm looking at working with Iraqis, Shia Iraqis here who do some of the similar practices to Iranians, but um, they do them in their, you know, it's not, there's, there's some big mosques here, but a lot of the practices happen in people's basements. They've converted their little bungalow houses to ritual centers. And you'd be surprised, like garages and basements and the innovation of, of this community is amazing. And they've also established many successful businesses and things and like totally changed the community and actually rejuvenated it a lot after the 2008 economic recession. So anyway, I'm gonna do my research here with this community. And part of what I will be doing is looking at foodways and looking at, um, I'm also interested in perhaps looking at blood donation activities here around Moharam because that's also related to my, to my research. So I'm a couple different directions, but I'm in, I'm in a good place to do some really fascinating work, more work on food, actually. So I'm excited about that.
0: That sounds like a very interesting project and very important, too. Um, I can't wait to read it whenever it comes out. Uh, thank you so much, Rose, for coming on the show and speaking with me today and sharing your uh, insight and your work with our listeners. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, reading your book, but I enjoyed it even more um, talking to you about it. It was an absolute pleasure, thank you.
1: Thank you so much.